You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen. Good to see you. I can see you so much better from up here because it's so bright. The sun is coming in and this white paint is really making it look beautiful in here. We're grateful for all of the work. Let me invite you to turn with me to our sermon text for the morning, which is Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. As we begin this morning, I want to ask you to think about a question. And that question is this. What do you think is the greatest calling in life? When you hear people talk about their lives, you often will hear people say something like, This calling on my life is the greatest calling in the world. Sometimes they're talking about being teachers or doctors or writers or parents or a whole host of other things, but that's the way we tend to think. We we find something that we treasure in our lives. We, We find some meaning in our lives. And we latch onto it. And then when you ask us, we say, I think this is the greatest calling in the world. Well, what actually is the greatest calling? It's a strange thing to say for so many people to be claiming to have this place in the world of the greatest calling. I think it's important for us to know from God's perspective, what is the greatest calling in all the world? I believe, as we're going to see in this text this morning, that the greatest calling in all the world is not something that you simply can do. It's not a, a talent that you or I may have. It's not, it's not a certain mission that we might be on or uh, give our lives to. But rather, I think that it's more God-centered than that. I think that the greatest calling is to seek God and live And that's what we see in this text this morning. And so I'm delighted for us to set our hearts upon the word of God. And as we already have, ask him to bless us and to show us his grace by ministering his word to our hearts this morning. As I'd like for us to consider from this text, this greatest calling to seek God and live. And we're going to do that in really three parts or three ways. We're going to consider this morning the problem that all of us face here in this room and anyone around the world through all of history. Number two, we're going to consider the solution to that problem. And number three, to understand the stakes. What is at stake in this ultimate calling to seek God and live? Basically, what we're able to do here by looking at this passage in the Old Testament is to, uh, is to be able to understand better what is the gospel message. What does it mean to be a Christian in these three parts? This is the Christian message in a nutshell, in a nutshell as we see it kind of lived out and developed in the lives of these people in the Old Testament. And so we're going to begin this morning, of course, with the problem. And the problem, as we see here and throughout the Bible, the problem for every single one of us is what we might call man's fallen state. Christians, like us, who care very much about the good news of Jesus Christ, do not shy away from the bad news of sin. 
In fact, I believe that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's his grace toward us. It's his redemptive plan in spite of our sin that actually enables us to open our eyes to the reality of our fallenness, of our incredible need for his grace. And while all the world may be turning away their eyes from looking honestly at sin, I think it's the grace of God. I think it's the message of Christianity that even for us daily as Christians allows us with joy to set our eyes on what we know is true. And that is that we are not okay. That we are all sinners of the highest order because not only have we sinned against one another, ultimately, even to quote those words of King David in the Old Testament, against you and you alone have I sinned. What an incredible treason against the God of the universe that we with our first parents would turn our hearts away from him. This is the problem. This is the problem of the universe. And yet because of Christ, we can face it joyfully, knowing that we have a Savior who has lived and died and risen again for us. You know, theologically, this idea of the fall speaks of the very beginning of our Bibles. In the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve, our first parents, were in the garden, in this perfect state, in covenant with God, and yet broke that covenant by disobeying God and eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, the Bible tells us that the whole world fell under the curse of sin and that we, with them, Adam and Eve, sinned right along. And therefore we, of our own fault, have become sinners with them. It's through this event, this fall, that we fell away from the glory of God, as the Bible says in the New Testament, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. We were created for God's glory, and yet we did not measure up to it, did we? We have fallen away. In the fall then, back in the book of Genesis, has even today continued to be not just an event in the past, but even a state, a state of existence that all of us are in, all of us are fallen we know that the fall is, is God's explanation or revelation of our need for his grace. It points to the fact that we all have sinned. We all have fallen short. And therefore, even today, we know. We know from the Bible. We know from our own experience of life day by day in the ways that we struggle and fail that we have remaining sin in our hearts. We, we remain in a fallen state, though by faith in Christ, we're redeemed. The fall is an important part of the Christian message. You cannot understand the good news of Jesus Christ until you are ready to look full in the face of sin, of the fall, its seriousness, its ugliness. We've heard for five chapters now in the book of Amos as we are working verse by verse through this book, words of of judgment and conviction for sin. That's probably been what's most heavy about this time that we've spent over the last few months. It's heavy because it's, it's kind of relentless, weekly looking into the darkness of sin 
looking into the, the reality that people who had been so marvelously saved by a covenant God and brought into covenant with him, with all of his plans and all of his purposes, yet still, yet still could live for themselves, yet still would be mistrusting that God, even oppressing other people, giving their, their efforts and their time and their focus to building their own little kingdom of self in the world, full of opulence and worldly riches. We read about that here at the beginning of chapter 5 and verse 1. We read another calling to hear, as we have in recent weeks, and it says this, hear this word which I am taking up for you as a song of mourning house of Israel. Verse two, she has fallen. She will not rise again, the virgin Israel. She lies unnoticed on her land. There is no one to raise her up. It's so striking to me the way that these words capture the heart of God when he's looking at these people as we've been reading about his conviction of their sin and the, the coming judgment upon them. And here to read that he is taking up a word which is a song of mourning. We're reading again as we do throughout the Bible, what is the proper response to realizing that we are sinners? It is to lament. It is to mourn. And it is to mourn in the most serious of ways because we've committed the most serious of treasons against the holy God of the universe. And therefore, it's not something that we should take lightly. Like other examples of mourning in our lives, it should catch our attention. It should silence our mouths. It should cause us to, to sit and really consider Really consider what the world does not want to consider. What does it mean to be a sinner? Our church is right here in the middle, or I guess maybe you say the north middle of a Jewish community. And if you have some time to read about uh, our neighbors, you'll find a number of very interesting things about their culture their response to life, the kinds of habits or ceremonies or practices. And one which stands out as I read this text, especially as it is about the nation of Israel at this time, is the Jewish ceremony of what's called sitting Shiva. It's a time of mourning and lament anytime someone close to you has died. Typically, it would be a, a parent or, or a grandparent or a child. But this ceremony really, in my mind, helps to, to mark out what it should be like when we mourn over the reality of our sin. In this earthly way, suffering in earthly mourning, this picture among our neighbors is striking. During the Shiva period, it's seven days, which actually is what Shiva means, seven. It's a seven-day period of mourning and visitation. 
Now, of course, those of us who have lost loved ones, we know that the mourning period goes on and on. And for many of us, we have a relatively short time of of official mourning at a funeral, and then we kind of get back to daily routine, and of course our, our, our sadness is still with us, and we're continuing to seek the Lord and care for one another, but, but this ceremony really puts on display the seriousness that I think we should consider of mourning even of our sin. It's a seven-day period of mourning and visitation in which, which those who are there are all dressed in black. In fact, there's sometimes a black cloth that is torn before the ceremony to begin it. All of the doors are left unlocked so that those who will come and go bringing food and other supplies are coming to visit and comfort those who are grieving can come in without any distraction. In fact, all of the mirrors will be covered in order to further eliminate any distraction from this mourning period. Everyone is sitting on the floor or in low stools. And then even after that seven-day period, there's another day of 30, another period of 30 days, Shaloshim, which is a less restricted continual time of, of serious consideration, of sober mourning for what has been lost. And friends, I have to tell you, when I hear about this, and I think about my own consideration of my remaining sin, of what my life has been like prior to Christ, I don't see quite the same mourning. I don't see quite the same humility. I see a lot of what I said earlier, a kind of escape from it. I need to put that out of my mind. I I don't need to cover the mirrors. I need to cover that up. I don't want to look at that. Here we have these people who are hearing a song of mourning. A song of mourning over the fall as we see it. A fall into sin. A fall that is to death. A fall that is without hope in the world. Hear these words again, the way that it is put. She has fallen. She will not rise again, the virgin Israel. The virgin. Uh, This is the picture of a young virgin woman who, who would who would greatly benefit from others who would come along and and take up her cause and care for her. And yet here she is. She lies unnoticed on her land. There's no one who will raise her up. This is a bleak picture. It's a picture of the seriousness of, of sin such that it leaves us without hope in the world. Now that's why it seems so strange probably to the world if they could be here now and hear us hear me, talking about this, talking about the importance and value of really stopping and considering what does it mean to be a sinner? Try to push it away. But that's not ever been the way that the Bible's taught us to live in relation to the reality of our sin, especially as Christians. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.12. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What I think is the most interesting word in that verse is remember. 
to remember that. There's something about that reality that ought never to leave us, that we would never move on from the recognition or the memory of from where we had fallen and from where we had been redeemed. That may be what is so often undercutting a lot of our excitement and our, our, our energy about the Christian life. It could be what's cutting the legs out from underneath some of our worship. I know it is mine because we're so quick, so even intentional to forget the reality or to be honest with our incredible need for grace and the incredible penalty that was ours to pay. And as long as that's left behind, as we said earlier, those who love the gospel most must love the the bad news as well and even use it to our own advantage to magnify just what God has done for us. But if we're constantly just pitching it under the rug, salvation doesn't seem all that great, does it? Kind of seems like something, well, yeah, obviously. What's not to save? Who's not to love? Rather than seeing what an incredible gift God has given us, what incredible patience, what incredible sparing and mercy he has shown that we were at one time separate from Christ, without hope in the world, without hope in the world. It is only by grace. It's only by grace that the knowledge of the fall is a means of grace for us like this. It's only by grace that we are able to see how God has used even the reality of our sin to work his good plans and purposes in our lives and to continue doing it, to continue encouraging us and putting on display his immense grace. When you remember, when I remember who we were, where we were, what we were. We also know that it is the reality of this fall that God uses as a precursor in every case to bring someone to Christ. There's no one who's ever come to Christ without a recognition of their sin. It is impossible because you cannot come to Christ. You don't know to come to Christ. You don't want to come to Christ. Until what? Until you know how great of a sinner you are. Because it's only then that you can see how great of a savior that he is. It makes all the difference. I'm reminded of a hymn writer. He wrote a couple. He's a pastor. And he wrote a couple of famous hymns in the, in the 1700s. Uh, remain famous today. One is Come Thou Fount. Robert Robinson at an early age, 17-year-old was, was really at that time nothing but a, but a hellraiser. He spent most of his time going around menacing others and, and getting drunk. In fact, one day he and his friends went and uh, decided that they would go uh, have some fun with a local fortune teller and have her tell her fortune. And so they, they got her drunk so that she would tell their fortune for free. And she looked at Robert and she said, Oh, Robert, I've seen something about you. You are going to live a long life. You're even going to see your children and your grandchildren. And even in those simple words from a drunken fortune teller, God's grace was at work. 
those words struck Robert Robinson, and he began to consider his life. In fact, those words haunted him for the next three years as he considered what his life might be, how long he might live, and the direction that he was going. Until one day, he began considering more carefully his life, and he even visited a famous preacher, George Whitfield. And on that day, George Whitfield was preaching about the wrath of God. George Whitfield was, was preaching, who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? And then over and over again, weeping, saying this, oh, the wrath of God to come. Oh, the wrath of God. As Robert Robinson came to understand in the fall and his own sin began to settle upon his heart, he fled to Christ. It was that recognition of his sin. It was that bad news of the law that led him, enabled him by grace to come to Christ. It was a means of grace to bring him to faith and to change him. Well, this morning, I hope that even as we look at just these few verses, that we would make it our own practice to do just this. And that is to meditate from time to time Certainly not to obsess because we're free. We're free now. We're free from the law. We're free from the curse and condemnation of the law and sin. But yet to meditate even more on our fallen condition. To meditate even more on the utter seriousness of sin. Because only then, as we do that together as a church, through community group, through just a smaller group, one-on-one -on -one kind of time together, I believe that our hearts will soar. I believe that as those who look to Christ and meditate on the reality of our sin, even our remaining sin today, it will put more of a smile on our face than a frown. Because we don't live as people without hope in the world. We live as people who have hope in Christ, who rules the world, who redeems sinners like us. But if we're not willing to look at that, if we're not willing to consider the reality of our own sin, even today, then our gladness will most certainly not increase. Our dependence on God will wane. We don't want that to happen, do we? So we want to take this first challenge away as a church this morning and make this a habit. Think about your life. Think about your past life. Think about from where you have come, who you were before Christ. Think even now who you are in Christ and yet your continual need for him because you look into your heart with God's help, his light shining in, and you see what? You see sin. You see places of change. And God has promised that. He's given it to us all by his covenant love, and that is a beautiful thing. But how? How has he given it to us? It brings us to the next part of our answer about God's call to seek him and live. Though our problem has always been and continues to be our fallen state, there is a solution. We know what that solution is. It's God's gracious way up. While the fall had taken us down, God has given us a gracious way up. And it is by faith in his son. 
It's not by our own doing. It's not by our own work. It's not by our own rule keeping. It's not by mustering up our own will and our own strength and doing our own thing and being our own people. No, it's not. What is it? It's about coming into him. It's about doing exactly what this call is, to seek me and live. So far in the book of Amos, we have seen a lot of darkness. It probably feels like all darkness. But look at this. You're getting ready to see first light. After all of this heaviness of judgment and sin and and conviction, what do we have here in verse 4? Following a song of mourning, hopefully a proper understanding of the seriousness of sin, here comes the great light breaking through the clouds, for this is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Those who have built up their walls, they filled up their citadels with loot by raiding other peoples. They have exalted themselves. Here's what he says to them. Seek me so that you may live. Seek me so that you may live. What mercy. Here is an open door. So far, the door of sin has slammed shut hope. There is no way for it to open. They can't open it. No one else can open it. It is locked tight. No matter what they could do to try to wiggle that latch, that door is not opening. It is darkness forevermore until you hear these words and you hear that latch slide across and the door starts to open. It opens with these words, seek me. Now that is what's so beautiful about this. You are seeing God's grace on incredible display that he would say to people who had really no no real interest in him, they were distracted by everything else, going their own way, a righteous God who has righteous commands and expectations, what should he or could he righteously do? Poof! Destroy them. End it. But what does he do instead? He's not driving them away. He's not calling them away. He's calling them to himself. It is incredible. Seek me. These people, sinful people, to a holy God, seek me. And if you seek me, I'm going to squash you. Is that what he says? No, that's not the word of grace. That's the word of law. You come near me, I will squash you. But the word of grace, seek me so that you may live. He's calling them to himself as a living fount of blessing. He's calling them to come. I want you to hear these words of Robert Robinson in that wonderful hymn, Come Thou Fount, knowing the history of his life a little bit and and where he'd come from and how he'd come to Christ. Then hear the words that he's writing as a converted man, as someone who has turned from sin and come to Christ because of the raging fire of the law and wrath. What does he say? He is mimicking these words. 
he is putting on display the God who says, seek me, the door is open, seek me and you will live. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing your grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, the mount of God's redeeming love. Seek me and you will live. Those are important words. That's the greatest calling in the universe. It is a calling to seek God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to seek God? How do you seek God? If you were out on the street later today, and I hope that you are, and you run into someone and you strike up a conversation about Jesus and you tell them you ought to seek him and live, and they said, what does that mean? How do I seek him? What would you say? It's kind of a hard question to answer. There's lots of different things that you could say. At the very top of the list, I think that the Bible puts it this way. When God says, seek me, he doesn't just mean look for me. He doesn't just mean root around the world trying to find uh, some evidence of me. He doesn't just mean come to church, sing some songs, hear a sermon. Here's what I think he means. I think he means treasure me. Those two concepts are often put together in scripture. Jesus does, in fact, in a number of parables, put those two together, that what it means to seek God is to treasure him. And what it means to treasure him is to seek him. Listen to these parables from Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found And he found it and he so treasured the treasure in the field that he hid it again. And from joy over it, he went and sold everything that he had and bought that field. That's what it means to seek God. It means to treasure him, to treasure him above all else, that you would even give up all of your life if it meant that you could gain him. You see, that's a big difference than the way that God is typically thought of. He's usually thought of on a spectrum, right? Um, Bad things down here, good things down here. And depending on how you feel, he's somewhere in the middle. He's usually toward that end. But there are other things on the list. There are other competitors in the race for who is greatest treasure of my heart. You know that. But what does it mean to seek him is that he's the highest treasure. Him, self, and we are seeking after him. He goes on in verse 45 and he says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold everything that he had and bought it. Seeking and treasuring, treasuring and seeking. And here God says, People who are in the very worst of places, in the midst of sin, seek me. Under the condemnation of death, 
If not repentant, seek me, and I will give you life. It is a wonderful, incredible, eternal exchange. But there's another problem. The other problem is that our hearts are fickle. We love to seek other things. The world is full, by God's grace, of treasures, and many of those good things can become quickly bad things because they become rulers of our hearts. They become treasures. Notice what he says in verse 5. Back to Amos chapter 5. But do not resort to Bethel and do not come to Gilgal nor cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into captivity and Bethel will come to nothing. What's he talking about? He's talking about three key places of religious ceremonies in the Old Testament. They were places of sacrifice. They were places where incredible things happened among Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of his covenant promises were developed around these three places among others, but these are the most prominent that they would recognize. And yet, as we saw last week, that what they were doing is they would go there and they were feigning worship. They were doing some of the sacrifices just as a cover for the rest of their lives to try to make everything okay. And you see something incredible here. You see what it means for him to say, seek me. He's saying that because there are other things that you could seek. In fact, there are other things that you could treasure that sure would look very Christian. And there are good things that we could do, but it might mask our real need. It would feign our real worship. So he says, don't go to Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't go to Beersheba. Don't go there and go through the routine. That's not what I'm wanting. That's not my calling. My calling is not for you to come do things. He says, my calling is that you would seek me. Come seek me. But none seek for God. The Bible says that in Romans. It says that there's no one righteous, not even one. No one, no one seeks for God. We seek for lots of other things, don't we? In fact, our, our hearts, I'd say, are treasure crazy we can make a treasure out of anything. You should see me. You should see me on a daily basis. You should come to my house. You should watch me. Watch me for a week. You will be amazed at how many treasures I can manufacture. I make treasures out of people. I make treasures out of possessions. I make treasures out of food. I make treasures out of electronic devices. I make treasures out of houses and cars, and ambitions, and plans all day long. And so do you. That is why he is saying, seek me, because we are treasure crazy. You want to see treasure crazy? Watch the Olympics. There are only three ways to win. Gold, silver, bronze. And you know why that is? Because we made it up. We just made it up. 
We said, here are the three places. So what do you do when you watch the swimming? You see the first three come in. The first three are so elated to have won even a bronze. Doesn't sound so great, but they're real excited because it means a lot to them. But fourth place, crying. What if we had said top four are the winners? Those are the people that get the treasures. What would have happened? One, two, three, and four, smiling and happy hugging. Five, crying. Why is it that way? Because we made it up. That has to be the height of treasure craziness. Just arbitrary medals on arbitrary stands for arbitrary things that you would do. We just made it up. That's what we're doing all day long. We're just making up stuff to treasure. Meanwhile, God is saying, seek me. That's why we need his grace. That's why we need his help. Because guess what? You can't. You can't seek him. You can't do it on your own. No one can. Whether you are not a Christian yet, or whether you are a Christian now, you can't do it. You're too overwhelmed with other things. The remaining sin in your heart undercuts the whole process of seeking. That's why throughout the Bible, there are two kinds of calls. There's a general call to the whole world, seek me that you may live. It's the call of the gospel. We go around everywhere with the gospel. We're telling everybody that we can, hopefully, telling everybody that we can, seek God and you will live. But they can't do it. Not until God calls in their hearts a special call, an enabling call, an effectual call, a call that awakens their hearts. And all of a sudden they see him for who he is, the treasure of treasures. And then, only then, they come to him. Robert Robinson. Here I find my greatest treasure. Hither, by thy help, I've come. And I hope, by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger bought me with his precious blood. That's the gospel. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's why you can say, roll call for all sinners, raise your hands. Me, I know I'm a sinner with a smile on your face. That's why when you hear God say, seek me and live, you can do it. Because Jesus sought you when you were a stranger. He is the ultimate seeker. Seeking God is the result of grace. It's not the path to grace. Therefore, when you pray for your friends and your family, for yourself, even if you're a Christian today, even if you're not a Christian today, and you need to come to Christ, I encourage you to pray the same way. Oh God, show us grace. Give us your grace. 
Work your grace in my friend's heart. Work your grace in my neighbor's heart. Please give us grace. Give us everything that we need so that we can treasure you because that's what it means to live. For those of us who are believers here today, this is what we wanna do. We wanna keep seeking God by grace. Believer or unbeliever, we wanna keep seeking God by grace. I just wanna encourage you in two simple ways. When we ask around folks in our church, as pastors, how can we pray for you? How can we help you? How can we encourage you? By far, I've said this before, by far, by far, way, a landslide. The most common response is, I'm not very consistent at reading my Bible and praying. I don't know why I can't just keep it going. I'm going weeks without, without really reading the Bible or really praying, some of us. So this is a place where we should start because we know the two main ways the Bible tells us that we are to seek God is through his word and by praying to him. Hearing what he has said in his word, we want to be working this Bible out. We want our Bible to be getting thicker and thicker and thicker because we know more and more of it. So let me just encourage you with two simple principles. Number one, every day, I want to encourage you, if you're not already, every day to get a timer on your phone or your watch or your microwave Set it for 25 minutes. Focused, reading, studying, hearing the word of God. 25 minutes. And when the timer goes off, shift to 10 minutes of praying. Start with yourself in the center and then work your way out. Work your way out to your family, to your church, to your workplace, to your community, to the world. And spend this time. Because we've got to get into a regular habit, don't we? Most people, I'm not going to ask you to do this. If I asked you to raise your hand, most hands up here would, would raise when I say, who needs help with this? So this is the help. Let's start there. Just start there. 25 minutes and 10 minutes. And then the Lord, the Lord will carry us forward. And then we'll make, we'll make other plans if we want to add some other things in there. But we want to seek him. We want to treasure him. We do that by his word and by prayer, of course, by worship on Sunday together and being together in community group and all the rest. Don't resort. Don't resort to Bethel. Don't go back to Gogol or Beersheba. Seek him. Seek him as your treasure. Finally, to really understand why this is so serious, we have, we have to understand what we've already gotten a sense of, but we have to hear it again. What are the stakes? The stakes could not be any higher. We are talking here about heaven, hell, and the God who saves. There's nothing more important than seeking the Lord because we are eternal beings. We will face him on a day of judgment and we will all be somewhere for eternity. And in the meantime, here we are in this difficult fallen world. The stakes are very high. Seeking God like this is no small thing. It is incredibly dangerous to overlook this or neglect it because it is so great. Listen to verse six again. Seek the Lord that you may live. He gives a couple of reasons and these reasons can help us. They're not the only two, but there's two big reasons why the stakes are so high. Number one, there are consequences for not seeking him. Verses six and seven talk about the ultimate consequences. It pictures them. Seek the Lord that you may live 
or he will break through like a fire, house of Joseph, and it will consume with no one to extinguish it for Bethel. For those who turn justice into wormwood and throw righteousness to the earth, consequences, big stakes. Number two, the ultimate stakes are not about consequences, though. The ultimate stakes are because of who it is who calls. It is who it is who calls us to seek. Look at verse 8. Listen to the way he describes himself as the God that they should seek and live. He who made Pleiades and Orion. These would be the two most prominent uh, constellations that they would see in the night sky. Gloriously putting on display the glory of God as we read in Psalm 19. And changes deep darkness, nighttime, into morning, and who darkens day into night. He's in complete control of everything that happens around the clock, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. He is entirely in charge of life on the earth, of whether it flourishes or whether it it dies. The Lord is his name. Therefore, we are told to seek him so that we may live. It is he who makes destruction flash upon the strong so the destruction comes upon the fortress. For these two reasons and many more, the ultimate calling in the universe is to seek the Lord. The question is, will you? Will we as a church? And how will we do this together? In the early 2000s, 2000s, there was a movement among churches that with good intentions to reach lots of people, developed what was called a seeker-sensitive movement. It was the idea that there are lots of people in the world who are kind of growing in their interest about religious things. And so what we want to do to help them come to him is we want to make everything just as easy as it possibly can be. We want to tell them just the lightest little bit that we can, mostly all the good stuff, so that they will want to seek God and they will want to come to him. We don't want to give them heavy stuff. We want to give them light stuff. We want to try to appeal to stuff that they like to do and that kind of thing. And there's parts of that there's nothing wrong with. That's good. It's joyful. It's happy. You know, we're real people with real interests and things. But where did it go wrong? It it, it totally missed the stakes. It totally missed the utterly serious nature of seeking God. That it's not about light, light and fluffy. It's about deep and strong and serious. That's what we need in this world, right? Seeker-sensitive kind of stuff doesn't fly here. It doesn't work in this world. This world is too hard. Maybe we didn't know that in the 2000s. Well, we know it now. 2020? 2021? We know it now. Fluffy will not work. What is he giving them? What is he telling them when he wants them to seek him? Deep, strong truth of who he is. I am the Lord, the God of armies. I am the God who rules in sovereignty, full of incredible grace and mercy. I am the God who gladly crushes my own son so that I might redeem you. That's serious. Serious stakes. 
It's a serious God who is the true king. And he's the ultimate judge, as we read here. We want to know him. I believe it was these realities and many more that made such a difference in Robert Robinson's life and which led him even to continue his hymn in this way. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. These are the questions of seeking God. We want to answer them in the in the richest possible ways because we want to know God's love. We want to seek him. We want to live. And we know that that only comes through Christ. I want to leave you with a question today that you would consider. I cannot answer this for you. Only you can answer it. But we can discuss it this week in community group and it has everything to do with what we've heard today. It has everything to do with treasures and seeking God and living. It has everything to do with our remaining sin and our willingness to look at it. It has everything to do with the way that we see God and why you would seek him. And it's simply this, two questions. Do you want God to love you? Why? Why do you want God to love you if you do? I hope that you do. I do. Do you want God to love you? And why? These kinds of questions strike at the heart of the matter. They strike at the heart of why you seek God, if you seek God, how you seek God. And we'll continue considering this together. Praying that God will give us grace so that we can seek him and know him and live, oh God in heaven. We come before you. We give you thanks. We give you thanks for your grace and for your mercy. We give you thanks for the truth of your word. We give you thanks for deep and rich truth, robust truth that is made for a hard world, for eternal truth that is made for the world to come. And, oh God, we pray, we pray that you would give us grace. Everyone here, believer or unbeliever, God, please give us grace. Cause us, cause us by your grace to seek you cause us by your mercy to live. Cause us to look full in the face of the reality of our sin and our great need for you even today. And we pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would put a smile on our hearts because we know that you have cared for our greatest problem and you have done it through your son. And it's only because of him and for him and by him that we can seek you. And that's what we do this morning as we sing again. May our, may our hearts be full of, of truth and full of energy and and happiness over the gospel today as we sing these words. God, please don't let them fall off the screen and onto the floor meaningless before us. Don't let us go to Bethel. Don't let us go to Gilgal. Don't let us go to Beersheba. Don't let us go through the motions and feign our worship. Set us on fire. Oh God, we pray that you would set us on fire today.
Make us fall in love with you. Make us live in you. Make us exalt you because we are great debtors to a great God who has given all for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.